This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Talking today remotely to uh, Andrew Pogue and Nick Pauly from uh, Fair Isle Brewing in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Andrew's co-founder, Nick's head brewer. Fair Isle is a uh, relatively new, not entirely new, but uh, been around for a year and a half or so. Not even Um, a year. Not even a year. You're that fresh. Okay. Okay, not uh, not new to the world of brewing, certainly, uh, you know, in terms of personal history, but uh, in terms of brewery life, Fair Isle. Um, in, in the meantime, I feel like I've tasted, uh, you know, at least a dozen of your beers in that same, in this, you know, short time period, uh, focusing on farmhouse sales and, uh, and rather specialists. But uh, um, Fair Isle, I think uh, you guys do a really fun job of... Uh, exploring tighter possibilities within that world of farmhouse sales rather than just simply focusing on uh, new crazier wilder uh, you know bigger bolder you know outlandish things um, you are certainly experimenting but within a, a nice narrow sophisticated range and the beers uh, exhibit a polish and a, and a beauty that uh, kind of defies the age of your beer of your brewery and so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, mixed culture brewing farmhouse brewing your approach to it I don't know if you call it farmhouse because you're in an urban neighborhood of Ballard in Seattle, and it's uh, you know, not exactly farmhouse. I say, I will let you guys address that. Before we do, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. GD's micro channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, haze for days in your IPAs. Carry Biohaze from BSG adds that perfect, stable, cloudy appearance for your hazy recipe. Made with all natural materials, Biohaze is a free-flowing microgranular powder that binds with protein molecules in beer that form polyphenol protein complexes to produce a cloudy haze. This unique product can be added to final beer to give your beer that famous haze. Find out more about Biohaze at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at one 800 Three seven four two seven three nine. So Andrew, why don't you give us the uh, the uh, lowdown on Farrow, your brewing history, and then a uh, short history of the brewery, and then uh, Nick, we can talk about uh, your brewing history too after that. Yeah, so Farrow opened um, earlier this year in January. We were open for just shy of eight weeks before um, the state of Washington shut down for COVID. So we've uh, exhibited and brewed and um, been open to our customers um, in COVID longer than we've been open up in normal time. So to some wow. extent, COVID is pretty normal for us and we've learned to operate in that and um, excited to kind of show the world and engage with our um, customers and guests um, in a post-COVID world, hopefully later this year. Um, in um, terms of brewing history, uh, how did what did you do before, um, before launching Fair Isle? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Texas and then moved to Austin, Texas after graduating from college um, to pursue being an architecture photographer. Uh, while I was in Austin, um, my now wife, um, we were dating at the time, but her dad taught me how to homebrew. And then through homebrewing, met Joshua Cockrell, the artist behind the Justy King brand, um, started homebrewing with him and his brother. And then through that, met Jeffrey and Michael at Justy King, and they kind of... Um, were influential and um, kind of like sharing what mixed culture beer and kind of like the greater craft beer industry and what that is. Um, and then that kind of like started the seed of wanting to start um, a brewery myself. And then moving up to Seattle, I uh, met up with Jeffrey um, Barker, my business partner. We met at the um, North Seattle Homebrew Club. And then we were both kind of entering a phase where we were looking at doing 
um, the brewery as a business and not so much a hobby anymore. And then quickly kind of realized we had um, similar interests and visions for what a brewery could look like. We were also both at the time um, independent. So we were working, he was doing independent IDs, IT stuff. I was doing independent as a photographer. And so we were looking for that collaborative nature and what a partnership could look like. Um, and that kind of started um, Fair Isle. Nick, uh, talk to me about your uh, your background in brewing. Uh, yeah, kind of like many pro brewers out there, I started as a home brewer as well. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, uh, joined the Snobs Homebrew Club um, when I was about 20 years old. A uh, buddy of my, our buddy and I, you know, just started brewing in our garage and got real serious about it for a, a few years there. Um, the president of the Homebrew Club kind of took me under his wing and, you know, we, we, Brewed some crazy stuff and you know, your your classics as well. Um, yeah, so rambling on about that. Uh, so yeah, so that was all during college. Uh, I went to college for mechanical engineering, um, and you know did the desk job life for for a couple of years there, and decided that you know wasn't my pathway, wasn't wasn't my calling at all. Um, doing you know HVAC design and, and plumbing and all that. Um, so I decided skills to that would come back and help you uh, in later brewery life for sure. Oh, no doubt. Oh, no doubt. Absolutely. But I feel like I do actually like more engineering on a day to day basis um, as a brewer than I did, you know, working behind a desk and, and moving lines around sometimes, you know, so. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So kind of towards the end of my tenure um, as an, an engineer, I decided to enroll in the concise course at Siebel. Um Love that. Great experience. Um, got to hang out in Chicago for a few weeks and, uh, yeah, taking the great craft beer scene there. Um, and then ended up landing a job as a production brewer at uh, Santan Brewing Company in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, spent a few years there producing work mostly. Um, got to learn on some nice big toys, you know, Centrifuge, 50 Barrel Brew House, um, all the filters you could think of, uh, 200 Barrel fermenters and whatnot, um, but really just really wanted to get more into, I guess, like the brew pub life, brew pub experience, getting more more and more involved in, in all the nuances of uh, the craft beer world, you know, having my hands kind of on everything from grain to glass, really. Um, so uh, had an opportunity to join the team at Arizona Wilderness Brewing Company uh, right up the street, um, and it's been about two and a half years there. Um, working with uh, my one of my best buddies, uh, Chase Sariva, who is now the head brewer down in uh, Australia at Wildflower Brewing Company. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, so we uh, we got to do some pretty crazy stuff at Arizona Wilderness. Um, not sure if you're familiar. Oh, for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we kind of ran the gamut, uh, brewing everything from hazy IPAs, stouts, saisons. Um, we did some cool cool ship stuff. Uh, use a bunch of forged ingredients and man, I was just smitten by all that. And just, I know we've got beer. an article on beerandbrewing.com about some of the, the wild cool ship, uh, you know, stuff that Arizona wilderness has done. And, uh, you know, if folks want to read more about that for sure. Go back. Yeah. Um, so how'd you end up up in uh, Seattle? Yeah, I just decided, um, you know, being a Northeast Ohio kid, uh, just couldn't handle the desert heat much longer. Um, was there for, uh, four and a half ish years and yeah i just wanted to see a little bit more of of this sure. side of the world uh and yeah got a got an opportunity to join fair isle uh about a year and a half ago something like that um during the you know still in the construction phases so uh got my hands in some plumbing some you know been doing any conduit uh yeah and then now we've been we've been producing work on our own for not quite a year but uh yeah. Yeah. So Andrew, uh, you, uh, decide to launch a new brewery. It's a dense brewing market. And, uh, uh, why focus, um, as tightly as you have on this kind of farmhouse Uber with, um, you know, the kind of narrowness that that, uh, entails. I think that's, um, kind of twofold or two reasons why one is that's what I enjoy to drink. Um, if I'm going to drink a beer, I pretty much drink lagers or farmhouse beers exclusively. Um, it's just what I enjoy. And, and um, from a consumer standpoint, there's not 
Um, that's kind of hard to do. Like, there's not a lot of saisons available where you could actually drink a saison every day um, without necessarily like um, cracking open these kind of saisons uh, that most people might like say for a special occasion. Like, I enjoy the the part of um, like the rich Belgian tradition of having like an everyday saison. And then my own personal philosophy, um, going back to like um, like choosing to focus only on architecture's photography. Um, I feel like uh, my own personal philosophy is to focus on a narrow niche of whatever you do um, and do that really, really well. Um, and so that kind of um, was a really easy decision for me to just do Banks Culture Rears. Um, we did a lot of market research um, before starting, um, came up with some rough numbers of less than like 1% of the market share being these mixed culture beers. So to me, it gave um, a no-brainer of uh, plenty of room available for a brewery that even in a crowded market isn't actually in a very crowded market of uh, mixed culture beers. Um, and then kind of like having this belief that there's many other people like me in Seattle and in Washington that would love to have access to more mixed culture beers that um, that don't because um, Washington's a pr- like predominantly hot focused state. Um, so does price figure into this? You mentioned every day, and you're right. You know when you um, you know, release saisons, and you know generally that mode. If you are looking at uh, yeah, well, I shouldn't say that. You know there are wonderful examples like you know Hill Farmstead, Arthur, and Anna that are you know you know, 10 or $12, you know, for a bottle, um, and can be consumed as everyday beers. But then there's also plenty of, you know, $30 plus, you know, fruited, highly specialized kinds of beers in that kind of category for you all. Um, you know, how do you balance that, uh, intention to be something that people can drink on a daily basis and not just, you know, as this privileged or uh, precious thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely, um, um, take price into consideration a lot. Uh, our beers do take longer to produce than most um, beers. Our typical Saison, like Madam, is almost um, nine weeks from brew to consumer. So that that's a long time than like an IPA, even like a long time for a lot of lagers. Sure. Um, so there is a price point that um, follows that. At the same time, like the beauty of, of our beers, lots of times you're not just necessarily drinking the quantity that most people drink, like a lager and IPA. Um, so our, our price pours at um, at the brewery, at the tasting room, are kind of equivalent to anybody else's um, IPAs um, on our like um, stainless saisons, um, which is kind of like so far has made up a majority of the beers we've released to the public, partly because of their timeline that being 90 days. Um, and then... Um, so we kind of like uh, like taking a step back, we kind of think about our beers in two families. Uh, one's the beers that are meant for drinking and enjoying um, an everyday beer, and the other beers that are meant for experiencing um, that you can be willing to put away in a cellar. And so we kind of have two of those families going. I don't necessarily think that um, our philosophy is in such where that we are never going to produce these beers that um, you should crack over for celebration, sure. but we should have the gamut of it. That makes sense. Um, let's talk. Let's actually start moving in and talking about uh, some of the specific approaches to beers. I'm, I, you know, given this bigger world of, of farmhouse and some of the unique, uh, you know, kinds of imprints that different brewers, you know, put on their beers. I'm really curious to see how you all have gone about forming an identity, uh, you know, for Fair Isle. Uh, but before we do that, the most common complaint about hard seltzers. They need more flavor. Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there's a better way. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugars, and just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma. Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzers that drink like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source 
of brewery and beer information and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB will reveal a whole new platform with all new marketing features for breweries to attract craft lovers to their unique brewery experience. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and to increase your taproom traffic, visit marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So let's talk about that kind of formative process, uh, you know, and you can both kind of speak to this because you're both involved in this. When you come up with the idea to create a farmhouse focused brewery, um, you know, there are a whole myriad of different ways to do that in terms of, you know, trying to build an idea of terroir, of focusing on creativity and different kinds of ingredients, of, uh, you know, of appealing to, you know, family history and past, um, you know, for you all. And then, and then there's that whole question of a culture and how that produces beers that have a kind of flavor that becomes associated with, the brewery itself. So talk to me, walk me through some of that kind of process of building an identity for Fair Isle in terms of what the beers will taste like and what consumers will continuously expect from those beers. Early on, I think one thing that Jeffrey and I really realized that the best thing that we could do was to create different environments and give our house culture time it needs to really excel and do its own thing. So part of what we had to do, almost the biggest part of what we are doing is almost stepping aside and letting our culture kind of be the star of the show. Um, and so within that, um, that kind of like being the foundation of how we kind of uh, discover these beers and correct me or push me in a different direction if you only go in a different direction. But because of that being like the foundation um, where, so what, talk to me about the genesis of the culture itself. You know, where do you, where did, how did it, uh, come about? Is this something that you had developed as a home brewer? Is this, uh, you know, is there a, a different means that you've gone about? Did you, you know, find some cultures that you enjoyed that were commercially available, build, blend, grow, develop, um, you know, what became that kind of foundation for, for flavor at Fair Isle? Yeah. So when I first moved up to Seattle, um, I really wanted to find a culture that represented the Northwest um, and not specific to Seattle, but just the Northwest in general. And so when we would go out on hikes on the weekends, when um, up in the Cascades, which is the big mountain range just east of us, or when we'd go over to the um, wine region of Yakima, which is just beyond those as well. Um, and then just hiking around the area, like I would gather different flowers um, and plants and I would come back and put them in fresh work and I would propagate things up. And then just through time um, and sensory analysis and natural selection, we kind of found different cultures that we liked the flavors of, and we started blending with those. Um, we still um, used a few commercial yeast strains too, like um, there's like resemblance of a DuPont strain in our house culture. Um, but we, one of the words that we used to describe our house culture is feral. Um, all yeast was once wild at one point, we brought it in and isolated, it became domestic. But now we're on a few hundredth generation of our house culture. It is no longer domesticated. So it's become feral. So we have a cocktail wild yeast and bacteria that we use to ferment all of our beers with. Um, and we pitch one batch the next. Um, Jeffrey and I have been kind of using this culture for about four years now before the brewery ever started. Um, so it's kind of got this long history of being somewhat now predictable. Um, it still changes, still evolves. Um, but at least now we know ways we can push it in different directions. We know how to create different environments so that different parts of the culture are going to excel in different ways. And then even exploring now with like these nuanced grains, how they interact to. Um, so that's kind of like the root of the house culture that we use. Have you done any kind of analysis on it or have you also banked it in case, uh, you know, things shift off in other weird directions and need to kind of reset a little bit? Yeah, so in 2018, uh, we banked it at uh, White Labs. Um, so we've even thought about recently like bringing it back and doing a side-by-side -side and seeing how it's changed. How much drift do you kind of you know see through that? And then uh, we can kind of move from there and talk about some of the levers that you push and pull in order to, to move it in different directions. Um, initially, we saw huge drifts, like um, let's say like year one through two of using the house culture 
Um, but since then, and really since, um, like just prior to getting it banked even, like we noticed a somewhat stability to it. We um, found out ways where we could bring it back to being more of a restraint tartness um, when it starts to drift more into tartness. Um, there is probably like, and Nick can speak more to this, um, over the last 18 months, it's definitely, as we've been like watching the pH, it's definitely still drifting slightly more tart. Um, there's ways that we brew to kind of eliminate that, uh, but it's still like this very, very slow drift. It isn't uh, a wild swing though. Um, Madam batch one now, which is our house saison, tastes similar enough to three or four batches down the road. Yeah, as Andrew was saying, um, one of the big, big things we tried to really tamp down is the you know lactic acid bacteria component of the culture. Um, I'm not exactly sure what it, you know what exact species and strains are involved. I just kind of shepherd that culture around and, and give it uh, a variety of uh, precursor compounds to kind of chew on, and um, from there you know go in whatever direction it might. Um, but yeah, so as far as the lactic acid bacteria, we're not doing anything too crazy. Um, just it's hopping rates and IBU. Um, we're generally around like the 25 to 30 IBU range for almost everything we do. Um, if it's going to see fruit, um, or depending on like kind of what, what we're trying to release, right. Um, maybe we want a little bit more acidity to, to give it some more like quenching properties, but but in general, we we like a kiss of tartness. So these beers are finishing not much lower than I'd say, you know, 3.6 pH um, is kind of the low end. I'd say they're more close to, you know, the three eights, three nines uh, pretty consistently. Um, and yeah, there is, you're right, a night it's tart, but they're not sour, um, mm -hmm. at least on the on the farmhouse side. I think some of the fruited stuff may, you know, kind of tilt a little bit, a little bit more acidic, but, um, but there's a subtlety to it and, and you're right. It doesn't kind of overpower. So IBU is a main component. You mentioned feeding the culture with different precursors in order to kind of, you know, push different flavor expressions in the beer. Talk to me a little bit more about, uh, about that process. Yeah. I mean, even, even as, you know, the basic stuff, uh, as far as, you know, pitch rates, uh, or, you know, oxygenation levels, um, will kind of help determine uh, what sort of like ester profile you're starting with. Um, again, you know, still, still being pretty early on, we are, you know, just gathering data and this is very much like an iterative thing. Sure. Uh, but yeah, hopping rates are going to change your ester production, your, your O2 rates. We, we generally ferment around, you know, 75 degrees Fahrenheit and then let free rise uh, usually ends, you know, uh, this time of year, maybe 90 degrees summers, you know, mid nineties. Um, so yeah, that that just creates uh, different environments uh, for the culture to express itself, and then over time, uh, you know, should you know, one of our branches goes uh, into barrels. Um, so how the culture deals with you know micro aeration throughout you know wood stays for prolonged periods. Um, we we've had. Uh, Beers in barrels for maybe as long, I think nine months is one of our older, older barrels. And just kind of seeing how that has transformed from, you know, six weeks in the tank, um, it being kind of a more secondary metabolite, kind of like ester profile, like your, your and phenol profile as well, um, your clove and all that, how that transforms down the line and, and just how it changes over the course of six months is, uh, yeah, just it, it's really interesting to watch and experience and taste through um, and just see talk how to, much. The yeah, talk works. to me more about that. I'm curious. So you were saying that after that tank fermentation, you end up with some relatively common you know, uh, flavors from the, t you know, more typical kind of farmhouse saison, but that those flavors then metabolize into other flavors. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the words, you know, for, for esters, I believe it's like esterification. Um, so how those compounds kind of break down via Britannomyces metabolism, uh, metabolism. Um, yeah. So they, they, they change from very typical clove and your, your kind of, uh, banana esters will change into, you know, utilizing compounds provided by, you know, the grain and the hops into beautiful, like floral, um, violet, lilac kind of characteristics, um, 
you know, your typical woody, woodsy, herbal, um, cinnamon kind of compounds that, you know, aren't, aren't, um, derived from adding any of those herbs and spices, but just from, uh, hanging out in, in wood for a while. Are there specific choices that you make on the front end of the brewing process, uh, in order to maximize some of that future expression as the culture moves through that fermentation process? Yeah. So, um, depending, depending on like what the ultimate goal of, you know, a batch is, you know, we do, we have a 15 barrel brew house. So, um, and we have a couple 30 barrel fermenters, so we'll double batch and maybe we'll split, you know, half and kind of serve it young. Um, so about six weeks residence time in tank. Um, and then we'll package that as is, but the other half will go to barrels. Um, and we'll treat that fermentation differently, definitely. And, you know, if, if a whole batch were to go to barrels, um, you know, we would, we would mash a little bit higher. Um, we would maybe consider um, using more a higher percentage of uh, raw grains. And when I say mash higher, um, anywhere from as low as 154 um, to I just did a kind of like uh, sim- single infusion turbid e- emulation batch. Uh, so we mashed at about 165, 167, somewhere in that range. So yeah, so creating that... Um, composition to give a little bit more of a dextrinous word, a little bit more complex carbohydrates to uh, allow the culture to manipulate that uh, wort profile uh, in oak, um, just to give it more and more food to kind of hang out and chew, you know, not as long as slow down uh, the process, give everything time to work as it yeah. kind of moves through and that. We'll su- yeah. We'll suppress the temperature during fermentation as well. So maybe we'll knock those out at, uh, you know, 68 and, kind of choke it off around 70, let the sack kind of, uh, settle down and leave a little bit of room for the other, the other guys, uh, to express themselves later on. Sure. Sure. Let's, let's, uh, talk a little bit about grain. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, but you all have been working a lot in, again, this kind of tighter sphere, trying to find new expressions by using differing ingredients. Um, you know, and some of that has been a focus on heirloom, uh, grains. Um, talk to me a little bit about the kind of foundation of that program and what you've learned through, uh, brewing with some of these interesting things. Part of our initial desire, uh, I think Nick and I were tag team this one. Um, so part of our initial desire to work with these heirloom grains is just um, kind of exploring and sharing with everybody the the bounty that the Northwest has to offer. And that's not just hops, but it's also grains. Um, a cool thing that most people probably don't know about the Northwest is that um, we don't just have one craft maltster, we have four craft maltsters producing a huge variety of grains. And so not only do you have like one barley to choose from, I think we have like a dozen or more different barleys all grown in different geographical parts of the Northwest too, that all are completely different. Um, So for us too, it's just a chance for us to play and explore and how does our yeast culture react with these heirloom grains. when we design recipes, we were super, super simple. So we're not adding a lot. Um, so these little minute moves of working with a barley in the Skagit Valley versus a barley in Eastern Washington versus a barley in Oregon, like has um, big ripple effects down the road. Um, so for us, that's just super fantastic and fascinating. Um, and it's been a great way for us to connect locally with the ecosystem of the Pacific Northwest too. and connecting with a local monster and knowing who the farmer is that we are buying the grain from and kind of understanding and talking to them about what they know, what they've learned from this grain and sharing their knowledge. And then as we kind of take that, that's kind of how we're able to kind of combine and explore these recipes. Let's talk about some of the specific grains that you all have uh, have brewed with. And then also think about what, um, you know, from your perspective, those have added or you know contributed in terms of uniqueness you know to flavors of the beers um you know is there one off the you know top of your head that uh um, strikes you as particularly interesting and uh, then we can kind of work through some of the others talking about what they are how they worked in the brewing process and then uh what the uh how the flavors ended up influencing the end beers yeah i'll tag team this with nick um, so earlier this year, um, or actually about a year ago, um, we got a bunch of grain called Salish Blue. 
It's not, it's not a barley, it's not a wheat, it's a new perennial grain variety that um, Western Washington um, and the Bread Lab have kind of created. Um, so it's one of the only perennial grains ever. Um, so I don't know if people know much about grains, but most grains aren't perennial. That means they have to replant every year. Um, so this being kind of a, a radical thing in the farm world. Um, so we were able to, uh, Eric, um, kind of our rep for Skadra Valley Malding, reached out to us to talk about this new grain they had available that they had just done a small pilot batch and we quickly jumped on it. Um, because our culture has a huge attenuation rate, um, we really enjoy playing with high adjuncts in our beer. Um, so Salish Blue maybe kind of resembles what we think of a typical white wheat. Um, and we do a, uh, a batch of beer, so to speak, with about 50% barley and 50% Salish Blue malt. Um, so a pretty high adjunct beer. Um, and what it did is it gave this beautiful creamy mouthfeel um, that you might expect from a wheat. Um, and then just played with these nuanced flavor notes that um, sometimes are often hard to describe. The best way to describe them is to sit and drink through all of our beers, knowing that they're all pretty much made with the same yeast and only minute differences of hops. And then you can really start to understand uh, the, like, the contribution of these little uh, moves. That I, I have enjoyed doing that this year with the beers that you've sent to us. Um, but people listening uh, are going to have to channel through. Uh, <laughs> you live vicariously through. And the beer that I'm drinking right now, the season one batch E is a, is brewed with Salish blue. And so I'm actually tasting it right now. And yes, it's uh um creamy as you describe it and uh you know of course this beer in particular has a a nice funky nose to it uh you know in a particularly belgian kind of approach um but that's interesting so salish blue is not actually wheat or barley it is its own grain yeah it's its own species it's um it was a cross between a um a bread flour and lemongrass um so Maybe knowing that you kind of pick up more notes of like lemon and citrus, but then um, with our culture itself, it's always hard to kind of like figure out what's the line between the, um, it's, it's a very soft blur line between what our culture is doing um, versus what are the, what's the grains. Yeah, to me early on, um, so the base beer that we feature as its own brand is called Hannah, and that features the Salish Blue. But to me, kind of early on with that beer, um, that grain was providing um, at least to my palate, notes of almost like a wit beer. So you got kind of this emulated coriander, tangelo, uh, curacao orange kind of vibe. Um, again, just coming from the combination of uh, the precursors of that grain species and the combination of our, our house mixed culture, um, which I guess I could speak a little bit to the tasting notes that generally the culture provides. You know, it's, it's kind of your typical lemon, a little bit pepper from the DuPont strain in there. Um, and then, yeah, some peach, um, some, a little bit of melon. Um, yeah, I, 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 those are the predominant, like kind of apricot cut notes, like candied apricot. Moving from Salish Blue, uh, what's, uh, are there some other grains that you've been brewing with that uh, have also added different, but also uh, unique and interesting characters to these beers? Uh, yeah, so another one we feature in one of our more, um, or at least a brand that we've we've brewed more frequently uh, called Layla, uh, features uh, purple Egyptian barley. Um, it is a Hollis barley. Um, uh, the brand layer is I'm I'm cheating off my notes here, so <laughs> hope you don't mind. Um, I'm going to yeah, open a bottle layer. of Layla while uh, while you uh, you know reference your notes there. <laughs> oh great, yeah. So it's called a purple barley, um, Hollis, but the brand layer's got a like a glossy purplish black um, component that unfortunately kind of drops off um, pretty early on to fermentation. And there's just a little bit of color to the word, but uh, nothing too crazy. Um, but yeah, it, it provides this beautiful, almost spicy rye um, component, uh, like nutty rye but really just shines uh and just ends up in a really nice drinkable crisp but like a firm rye-esque backbone i guess uh, but coming from a barley species as well which uh definitely helps um we use 50 percent of this grain so 50 50 um you know a pilsner variety and uh, the purple egyptian variety um 
but it being a barley variety uh, definitely helps on the on the brew house. Uh, lauders a lot, a lot nicer. You know, fewer beta glucans and gums and uh, you know all that fun stuff. It makes for a nice brew day. <laughs> Yeah, that, I guess that would be a question with like uh, something like the Salish, you know, um, pushing that with these high adjunct 50 50 uh, uh, mashes has to pose in technical uh, issues and challenges for you. For sure. Yeah. Um, thankfully, you know, we, we've got a nice brew house from uh, North Coast Metal Design down in Portland. Um, it, it handles grain really well. Um, a few months back, we did a, a coit. Uh, like a Dutch quite inspired beer. Um, so kind of semi-traditional. Um, it was about 45% uh, malted black oats from Skagit Valley malting uh, just up north. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, 20% uh, malted white wheat. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I lauded pretty, pretty damn well. I think we did just like a two-step uh, infusion and uh, no issues. Uh, the hold, the hold oats definitely help, but... <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's there, really fun to kind of feature those grains in, in high percentages to really um, let those focus and be, um, yeah, to take up that backbone. Um, did uh, did some of this idea that you were going to be focusing this way influence the way that you all built out and inspect the brew house? It did, yeah. So we, um, like Matt over at North Coast, did a fantastic job like the first conversations were what do you guys brew let's talk about your beers um, and let's design a system specifically for that um, and it was always like um yes let's rise to the challenge and figure that out um we our typical range of our beers um are probably from like 8 to 14 play-doh maybe 8 to 12 is most of them so we're kind of like a low play-doh beer producer um, but because we do do a bunch of adjuncts and almost 100% of our beers and some of them are pretty high ad adjuncts, that's something that he um, took in consideration and designed. So while the stout brewers are building gigantic mash tons relative to their smaller kettles, you guys mm -hmm. just need really strong rake motors. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, yeah. A, it's a monster. And our brew house itself um, will allow us to do like a 15 barrel, like um, almost equivalent of an imperial stout, um, which we do do on the rare occasion. Um, and then that, we have an oversized kettle, so we need a 25 barrels of like a really low six or seven plate of beer. Uh, so is how much does uh, farmhouse beer make up of everything that you brew or does everything that you brew get moved through house culture? Yeah, we don't... I know we're, you're still early in this whole, you know, with one year in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I imagine stories could change down the road. But uh, at this point, what does it look like? We haven't brewed anything that doesn't use our house culture. Wow. So everything. Oh, we have 15 saisons on the board that are ours. We have a guest IPA or a guest lager sometimes and that's it how do you then you know so you even though you're keeping things relatively tight um what are some of the other means of differentiation between uh these saisons farmhouse sales that uh that you all have developed in order to you know create different experiences for your consumers yeah i think um grains being one of the ones that we already talked about um, we do use hops. We don't shy away from hops. We have um, two beers, Bobby, which is kind of like a version of like a kind of a Northwest New American New World hoppy kind of pale ale. And we have a, another beer um, we call that actually just a rotating um, super hoppy beer that we actually use the second use of the mosaic hops from Bobby to brew the other one. Um, so we do use hops. Um, we also have different environments, everything from stainless steel to fooders to oak punchins to spear barrels, um, and then just using kind of the wide variety of other adjuncts from fruit to foraging ingredients to the cascades to using bread from a local bakery to brew Voss. Like, um, to me, there's, um, an enormous amount of range available within these mixed culture beers that it's not it's almost as big a range of like a lager per se, right? Like uh, lagers aren't always pilsners, right? There's a huge sure. range of lagers that you can explore. Um, in the same way with mixed culture beers, there's a huge range of beers that we can explore. 
Well, let's talk about some of those uh, ingredients, foraged things, uh, even hops and you know, usage and, and how you move forward on that. But first, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer in June. So make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page to find out when the contest opens up and how you can enter to win a Keg Viking. So Nick, why don't you talk to me a little bit about um, some of the more interesting ingredients, uh, especially you know on that kind of you know foraged and uh, you know ingredient side that speak to your Pacific Northwest terroir. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess so far I'll lead in with the the beer I'm actually drinking. Andrew and I are both. Uh, we just cracked open a. It's called Alexandra. It's a beer featuring foraged um, fireweed. Um, which grows, you know, up here, uh, it almost grows as a weed, right? Um, but typically in areas that have been burned. Um, but yeah, we have, we work with an, et- an ethnobotanist, which Andrew could speak about further. Um, but she, per- you know, kind of goes around all around the state and gathers up some really cool samples of, of things that we might be interested in. And, uh, you know, uh, we get to work from anything from fireweed, you know, rose hips, elderflower. I mean, everything grows up here. So it's almost endless. Um, but yeah, back to the fireweed, um, uh, to my palate, it, it provides, you know, notes of like green, like a green tea, uh, very herbal, very, very dry and refreshing. Um, it kind of has that tannic green, uh, green tea finish, um, just makes for a quenching beverage. What does uh, usage process look like? How do you, uh, gather then prepare and then, uh, get it into the right shape, you know, figure out dosage within the beer and then, uh, you know, and kind of guide the a right expression around it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, as far as dosage, um, we have just kind of started up a somewhat pilot system um, that we call Windward and Leeward. Um, so we're basically use, utilizing 15-gallon uh, conical fermenters, uh, homebrew conical fermenters, side-streaming some wort or some uh, semi-finished you know, green beer, um, and kind of just playing around with dosing, but with no urgency you know, to, to get it out. Um, so we can, you know, add a little bit, we can always add a little bit more. Um, but yeah, so typically these, these forged ingredients come in dried and vacuum sealed, um, and pretty much ready for use. It's just up to us to determine how we want to use them. Um, but generally I'd say most of it is just kind of cold steeped, um, or, you know, ambient temperature steeped. Um, but for this fireweed beer in particular, we did use it hot side. Um, so I kind of borrowed like a hazy IPA, um, cool down whirlpool technique. Um, so I didn't want to, you know, boil the fireweed, um, consider it kind of like, uh, you know, at flame out or whatever, but I actually just chilled the wort to about 190 and then did a steep for, I think like 10 minutes or so, um, of the fireweed. Um, forgive me, I, for, I forgot kind of the rate. Um, yeah, this one was hot side and, you know, we, we weren't sure if we were going to have to supplement uh, cold side or not, um, but we determined with this one, uh, there was just a in-your-face kind of fireweed <laughs> character, uh, you know, right from the kettle. And, uh, yeah. How do, how do you describe fireweed? Um, the flavor profile or the plant itself? Both. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm trying to visualize this. Yeah, so the plant itself is an opportunistic weed. It's one of the first things to grow back after a fire um, or any kind of like a um, uh, vast amount of land with a bunch of sun to it. Um, and it grows, it's a really stocky plant and grows really tall um, up to like six feet or eight feet. Um, and it has these uh, kind of slender leaves that come out of it and a beautiful red flower um, um, I'm really bad with the names of flowers, but there's like lots of little flowers up top. Um, and, um, yeah, so like, uh, to some degree, like if you are in Alaska in the summer months, um, you see these beautiful red fields, which is one reason why people think it's called fireweed. Um, the other being that it's the first thing to pop up after a fire. Um, and so the leaves itself is a part of the plant that we use. Um, so we dry the leaves, um, and the, uh, 
the natives used to use the leaves as a uh, kind of a green tea substitute or black tea substitute. So lots of the characteristics um, from a flavor profile that you'd expect like in a green tea um, come across in these fiery weed too. Um, so that's kind of like the part of the plant that we use. I don't know if people are familiar maybe with us and Jester King, they know that we went and did a collab with them about three, four years ago. And uh, we brought down fireweed for that and created a beer card Fair Voyage. Um, and then through that process, um, that's actually the second time we used it, but through that on a big scale, understanding more of the dosage rate. So with Alexandra, we wanted to do a much more pronounced fireweed note um, and really celebrate that ingredient. Um, so we doubled the dosage on that. And then, you know, since this is not really commercially harvested, I mean, who actually cuts it down, <laughs> processes it, dries it? Is this something that you guys do or you work with this ethnobotanist who then uh, brings those samples in for you? Yeah, so Alex is um, the lady that we work with for um, all of our foraging or at least most of our foraging. Um, I've known her for 15, 20 years. We went to college together. Um, and so what she does, she actually has a license um, in a company and has a permit through the U.S. Forest Service um, to harvest um, these kind of wild forage ingredients. And one of the reasons why she first introduced us to fireweed, um, and she's the one that kind of brought it to our attention, was that it's sustainably harvested. Um, so by going out and grabbing these leaves and grabbing these plants, we're not going to be destroying a habitat and we're not going to be like... Um, potentially like hurting the plant for um, future generations. Um, so she actually goes out and she harvests them, she dries them and packages and delivers us almost in the same way that if you were to go buy something from BSG um, and having sure. like that for her. That's kind of fun. And, uh, you know, and it's almost like using kudzu if you're in the South where, mm. uh, you, know, you know, like finding something that grows everywhere that uh, it's an opportunistic weed like that. Although kudzu is not a native species where, uh, you know, it sounds like fireweed actually is a native species. It is to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So it's, um, it'll be from here all the way up to Alaska and then as well um, across into Russia. Well, that's a much better story. Um, and, you know, talk to me about some of the other forged ingredients that you all have been uh, working with and, uh, you know, gotten interesting results from. Yeah. So um, some of the ones that we've uh, made beer on a kind of a more commercial scale with um, is the elderberry and elderflower and rose hips. Um, so we actually use elderberry um, for a, uh, a fruited beer we called Eleanor. Um, Eleanor being the uh, Celtic kind of like folklore um, for the uh, the goddess of the elderberry plant. Um, so we gather or Alex gathers a bunch of elderberries, uh, which come in around like August of every year in the Cascades. Um, so elderberries are kind of one of those fruits that's a lot more labor intensive. Um, so to kind of harvest the elderberry, you you cut off the fruit. Um, and I don't know if anybody's familiar with what an elderberry looks like, but it looks kind of like almost had like a grape, a grape clump, but instead of um, being grape size, all the berries almost a pea size. Um, and the best way to harvest those is you freeze them and they get really hard and frozen. And then you, from there, you can shake them off and they fall off all the, um, off the stems. Um, so that, so when, um, when we work with elderberry, uh, we bring a bunch of frozen ones. Uh, we all sit around and watch a movie uh, and then- Blade Runner. <laughs> We watched Blade Runner during, um, it felt very fitting in August. Uh, and then we um, processed all those elderberries and added it to um, a tank and then transferred it on top of that. Um, another, and then sometimes as Nick mentioned earlier, like what we are doing is that we are exploring um, forged ingredients on a very tiny scale in a windward and leeward, which is a 15 barrel batch or 15 gallon batch um, for next season. Um, because oftentimes what happens is that the season to produce and har or to harvest these are so short um, that we are playing with dosing rates and understanding where we want, how we wanted to use them, um, not with a mindset of how we're going to use it this year, but how we're going to use it next year. 
I certainly understand that process. It's like every year when we look at uh, Oktoberfest beers or pumpkin beers, mm. you know, because we have a magazine lead time of three or four months. And then same thing with you. If you have a 90-day lead time, um, understanding how you want to do it now means you have to plan for next year's uh, you know, kind of process mm. on that. Um, so elderberries, fireweed, um, any other interesting forage ingredients that have, uh, uh, you know, you've, you've found curious to work with? Yeah, so one of the uh, very early on, uh, you know, small batch series beers that we did was with uh, Hawthorne, uh, which I I actually not super familiar with, but uh, Hawthorne and yarrow, um, yarrow is plentiful up here as well. Almost grows as a, a weed, uh, but has just this beautiful, super funky, dank but floral um, characteristic, um, and you know, obviously is a traditional like Gruet uh, herb. Sure. Um, so it kind of harkens back to pre-hop days, um, which we, you know, appreciate for sure at Farao. Has um, medicinal properties too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, a, it's healing, healing properties, right? Um, but I was yeah, just so watching threw... uh, Rashida Jones talk about it the other day on a television show, and she's, she had yarrow from her uh, her garden, and it uh, stopped a bleeding in a cut that she had. Yeah. Oh, nice. Right on. <clears throat> um, yeah. So Sorry, that's neither here nor there. It's a complete distraction. <laughs> I, haven't yeah. seen, I haven't seen the show. I uh, love, love Rashida Jones from the office days. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, so the, uh, you know, the yarrow in, in conjunction with these, um, they were, you, you know, so the hawthorn berries themselves were kind of, you know, very uh, herbal, bitter, um, kind of woodsy. But, we, you know, we, we threw a, a hefty amount into 15 gallons and they just took on this like fruit punch characteristic. And uh, in conjunction with that yarrow um, was, you know, just mind blowing. And I think something that we're going to consider maybe scaling up. Um, then we got some pretty good reception. Uh, and then other ingredients. Yeah, we, we've got, you know, salmon berries grow plentiful up here. Um, we, what else we got? Uh, Are there any, uh, you know, some any particulars? Again, you mentioned you, it's mostly cold steeping. Um, you know, are, are there any kind of, you know, uh, unique process approaches as you add things like these berries and uh, yarrow and other kinds of herbs on that cold side in order to get the kind of quality of flavor extraction that you're looking for or to kind of optimize the way, you know, that the flavors that you extract work with the, the kind of culture to become what they're going to become? Sure. Yeah. I, I think the thing that we're most concerned about is, you know, kind of like oversteeping or overdoing it and kind of leaching out some of those green components and characteristics and right. we're just getting too vegetal or uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit too rancid. So it's just a constant, you know, tasting iteration and um, yeah, just trying kind of every day, you know, multiple times a day even and just gathering sensory on it. And um, multiple times that, a day, multiple, you're sampling from tanks multiple times a day as you're steeping <laughs> things. Hey, it's, it's hard work. All right. Do you recirculate? Um, you know, what does that kind of tank process look like? No. So mostly um, if we're doing anything crazy or steeping, we'll, we'll generally split off of a batch and do a little bit smaller quantities. Um, not, you know, not as small as 15 gallons, but we'll pull into um, IBC totes. Um, so those max out at about 10 barrels, you know, film with, you know, seven or whatever it might be. Uh, but no recirculation. We've uh, we've only got one pump, so it's kind of hard to tie that up all the time. Um, it's just it's a cold steep and maybe you know some agitation, you know, with a sanitized spoon or whatever you might get to get a little bit more maceration out of it. Um, yeah, that that's basically it. Muslin bags are our best friends. So then, do you? You know, if you're splitting it out into the tote for this kind of steeping process, you then blend that back in with. Uh, you know, the rest of the batch in order and then homogenize in order to kind of, you know, uh, pull it back in. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, exactly. And if, okay. Yeah. Uh, and if anything were too intense, you know, we've, we've always got beer to kind of blend back with or, sure. or you know, adjust as necessary or throw it in oak and uh, let's see how it changes <laughs> and <laughs> forget about it for a while. No, we haven't had to do that, but. Were you going to say something, Andrew? I was going to say some of these batches that we do do, we are doing them um, because forage ingredients are so limited. We are just doing them really, really small scales. Right. Um, and so small being like one tote size, which is roughly seven barrels. So we have like a batch we call Gemma. It's with um, 
elderflower and rose hips. And we've played around with that enough where we kind of know the dosing rates of, rates of that. So when we add um, eight barrels of that to a tote, we dose with that. Still doing sensory and pretty much, like Nick said, pulling it before it gets too vegetable or too weird or too kind of like um, green in a bad way. So it definitely swings a lot. Let's talk about hops for a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously this is a part of, uh, you know, of your brewing. Um, what is, uh, what's your typical hops approach look like in your farmhouse beers? And then, uh, do you have any, uh, approaches that, uh, stray or vary from that? Uh, yeah, we, so we use a actually fairly wide array of hops. Um, generally the workhorse hop are your classic Hallertal and Mithilfru. Um, you know, somewhat low alpha, um, can get some good utilization out of it. Um, like I said, we're we're pushing for like 30 IBU and generally trying to target you know around a, a pound of hops per barrel. Um, so you need some you know, some low alpha to achieve that. Um, but yeah, other other than those that or I guess that classic you know some Stristle Spalt are always good nice two alpha range uh, to achieve those goals and get some beautiful like classic uh, herbal uh, characteristics out of. But then, yeah, as far as the new school stuff goes, um, for uh, Bobby, as Andrew mentioned, our kind of uh, pale ale, um, we're using uh, citron mosaic on the hot side, your, your classic hops, uh, and then dry hopping with about a pound per barrel of uh, mosaic. Yeah, so, and then from the, from the dry hop of that Bobby brand, um, we are then typically u- uh, using a, second turn on the brew house to cast out wort back into the fermenter um, that contains that dry hop slurry. Um, I'll dump a little bit of, uh, of yeast in a, a little bit of the hop load out, um, but then basically casting out fresh wort uh, on top of that slurry and uh, playing around with uh, the uh, tons of your residual aromas and flavors that are left over from um, from, from Mosaic Hops. And then uh, typically with that brand, we are then supplementing and dry hopping with uh, a rotating variety of, you know, we've done Sabro, uh, some Citra Lupulin. Uh, we're going to place some Nelson Salvin. Um, but just, yeah, rotating hops. Again, there is no typical. We're still, you know, we're still uh, on the in the early stages of, of playing around these. And sure. I think we've only done about 40 turns or so on the brew house. So, so let me get this straight that you do actually, you will have a beer or beers where you are reusing hops. Yeah. You're pitching fresh wort onto hops that have already, uh, or a mix of hops and culture that's already fermented another beer. Yeah. So I'm dropping a little bit of yeast out of there, or at least, you know, yeah. that slurry, uh, so as to not over pitch and just have a, a huge, you know, yeast load from the previous batch. But then there's, you know, there's still, uh, a good amount of uh, the mosaic dry hop left over in the tank, um, and you know any any beer. Don't worry about knows. cleaning, right? No, no, no worry about cleaning. It's all the it's the beauty of using the same culture and everything. Um, no worry about cross contamination. Um, but yeah, you know any brewer knows if you're dumping hops out of a fermenter, um, they generally, unfortunately, maybe have uh, a little bit more aroma than you want that you're just dumping down the drain. Um, so I remember reading, I uh, believe uh, the ASBC and uh, Master Brewers Association have, have done some studies. And I remember just kind of glancing at that. And we kind of had an open-ended, uh, no, no plans for a specific beer to brew. So I'm like, hey, let's, let's try to uh, see what we can get out of these. Um, and we all end up really liking it. So we've used that as kind of a base beer for... Um, you know, a separate hoppy, hoppy brand, but also for fruiting. Um, and it can provide, you know, those spent hops can provide a really cool underlying um, base layer to accentuate. Um, I believe one of the cooler ones we've done were with uh, kiwi berries or hardy kiwi, um, huh. kind of like kiwis, but they look like a grape uh, in certain ways. Um, and that, yeah, that, that, residual um somewhat subdued uh, mosaic character really we felt played well with with those kiwi berries it's a lot of fun and uh, stan hieronymus has written for us on the same kind of subject of reusing hops um you know i love second use fruit beers personally because 
you know, I am biased towards beer flavor and I love, you know, that I love the way that the smaller knocked down fruit flavors kind of complement that, you know, beer flavor. And so, of course, it like makes conceptual sense to me that uh, second use hops that haven't been completely cached through that, you know, first dry hopping process still have plenty to give to a beer uh, in an interesting way. But you don't find that there's a extra kind of vegetal character to it or that it you know tilts in any kind of uh, uh, unpleasant direction? No, thankfully not. Um, you know, I am kind of, again, sampling sometimes multiple times a day um, but and, and dropping hops as necessary. So, um, yeah, no, thankfully no, no green vegetal uh, gross notes. That's pretty fun and yeah. uh, and kind of cool and, and you know speaks to the kind of um, long term sustainability. Why throw away something as expensive as hops um, when there's they still have more life to them and you know can make for another interesting beer after that first time. Um, you know we should all be looking to uh, decrease our waste stream, especially if it helps us produce something that is also really uh, delicious and uh, and drinkable. Um, zooming out for a little bit, um, any fun projects that are, uh, that you find exciting on the horizon or, uh, new areas that you are experimenting in things that you may not have released yet that, uh, that you're still playing with. Yeah. So we were lucky enough to get a bunch of Syrah grapes, uh, which grows beautifully up here in Washington. Um, so we've got that in barrels. Um, we, it's been there what since about September or so. Um, so we've done a couple different dosage rates. Um, did a fun little winemaker's technique uh, called carbonic maceration. Um, so we did some whole cluster, uh, you know, pulled the barrel head off, threw a, a bunch of whole cluster Syrah grapes in there, um, purged the hell out of it with CO2, and forgot about it for a couple weeks, um, and then proceeded to press, and then rack our beer on top, and then other variations of, of whole cluster Syrah uh, fermentation and just, you know, pressed kind of must uh, composition with our beer. Um, so yeah, playing with grapes is always fun. Another, another kind of uh, underrated ingredient, not underrated, uh, but another, another ingredient that we should really embrace because of the availability up here. Other, other projects uh, just brewed a, turbid-ish kind of raw stock beer with a healthy amount of aged hops. Um, not our own. Those came from YCH. Um, but yeah, trying to kind of see how our culture plays with um, those characteristics and uh, you know, a healthy amount of, of raw wheat, uh, I think in like the 35, 40% range. Um, and what else we got? We got a few beautiful fruiter crafter fruiters in July. Um, so we are kind of rolling out um, kind of a, uh, a brand that's in between our Saisons and our Oak Age beers that comes out of the fruiter. So we did a beautiful Digard beer that spent some time lagering. Um, so kind of going back um, to the earlier conversations about making these beers approachable and these Oak Age beers. So that's kind of a fun project to gathering that character that we get from a little longer aging without necessarily having a 12 month old Saison beer, but something that we can kind of um, uh, brew and package enough quantity to kind of make it more available to everybody so it doesn't, it can leave the tasting room. Did you take advantage of that food or crafters, you know, buy in the middle of the pandemic, pay for it afterwards program? We did. Thank you, food or crafters. That, I thought that was a fantastic way to, you know, keep their folks working and, uh, and also help, you know, support brewers as they get, kind of get through this difficult year. No, yeah. it, was, uh, it was very cool. Um, if we, uh, if we look at the next year or the next two years, I know we're still, you know, kind of in this pandemic, there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, you know, we've got vaccines getting out there. Hopefully you'll see people back in the tap room. I imagine it's open in a limited way now, but, you know, potentially more throughout this year as, uh, as things start to turn around more seriously. Um, you know, but what does the next year or two look like, uh, for Fair Isle and, uh, you know, and how do you see yourself two years from now? I think, um, you know, a, a big part of it is just the fact that we did open, you know, just two months after or two months before COVID. And so like the initial thing is like, there's a lot of things we wanted to do as a brewery, everything from like having events for our bottle membership 
to having customers at the bar, to um, this kind of environment and place that we had originally set up and explored that we haven't really been able to utilize yet. Um, so in the short term, like um, that's kind of like a huge goal. Um, and then the second one is to kind of, as we've been, um, the beauty of doing mixed culture beers too, and not just hoppy, hop focused beers is that um, with the shutdown of COVID, we didn't have to dump beers because our beers have a long shelf life and um, we can keep brewing um, even though we aren't necessarily looking at like, even though our sales might be slowing down in two months, we are brewing a lot of beers um, and putting away an oak. So I think we've put 300 barrels of beer in oak maybe since COVID. Um, and so that kind of pipeline um, that we are growing is super exciting. So not only like uh, in the past 12 months, most people had most of our stainless steel saisons only, but we've got this whole other kind of branches of beer, everything from really older oak age beer that's going to see fruit one day to just um, beautiful nuanced um, oak age beer. Um, so like eventually those will kind of start come to play and come into fruition. So that's really exciting. What's the, the long-term goal for Fair Isle? How big, you know, what's the goal in terms of how much beer you make and, uh, you know, in a year and what that kind of ultimate brewery plan looks like? I think the big thing for us, the goal is to get to a point where you, where we are um, able to tip the scale a little bit and that we are able to introduce people and to um, continue to share with them um, at least a greater appreciation of mixed culture beers and as well as the community of people that um, kind of make the ingredients that goes into this beer. So that's the ultimate goal that we're about. Um, and I know, I don't know if there's a specific barrel edge that I, we, we can aim for about that, but um, the goal is to introduce more people to the wonderful world and mixed culture beer. Well, that sounds noble. And, uh, um, you know, from our perspective, I know that, uh, you know, Joe Stang, our managing editor, and I have, have both uh, really been enjoying drinking your beers over this past year that you've uh, you've sent out our way. Um, and there is an accomplishment and a sophistication and a delicate beauty to them that uh, that we can really appreciate that doesn't taste like a young brewery. And, uh, you know, and so congratulations to you all for producing beer that uh, is so fine and so well considered uh uh right out of the gate with a young brewery um gnd chillers has set the standard on quality service reliability and dedication get haze for days with carry bio haze turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with craft concentrate blends from old orchard take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of brewery db and check the abs commercial facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg viking of course if you'd like to support this very podcast go to beerandbrewing.com click on the subscribe button or if you're a professional brewer check out our all access subscriptions at brewingindustryguide.com um andrew if people want to learn more about fair isle or uh, find a way to taste some of your beautiful farmhouse creations uh, where do they find you all yeah so check out our website fairislebrewing.com we have an instagram account um, and the cool thing about Washington is we can actually ship beer to everybody in the state of Washington. Um, so find a friend if you don't live here, um, have them uh, have us, uh, have them order beer online and we'll ship it to them. Uh, we also are sending um, small amounts of beer to Oregon, California, and BC. Very cool. We'll uh, everyone out there, check them out. Andrew Pogue, Nick Pauley, Fair Isle Brewing, Seattle, Washington. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.